0: This is our weekend when we do the one-day offering to feed the world. If you don't know what that is, for years now, we pick one weekend out of the year to take an offering in which we have asked you over the last three weeks to prayerfully consider giving one day's wage. How many of you know how much you make in in a day? Okay, hopefully you have figured it out. Figure out what you make in a day and give it to God through convoy of hope. Convoy our first responders at all the disasters, that so many disasters that happen in the world. Um, they feed thousands of kids every day, and we have partnered with Convoy of Hope to make a difference. As I talk, Hal, come on up here. I want to introduce you. Um, I thought it was time, because of all the years we've been doing that, for you to meet. We're going to take eight to 10 minutes here, and I want you to hear Hal's story. Hal is the founder and the current president of Convoy of Hope. He's a dear friend. He's a wonderful brother in the Lord, but come on over here. Hal is uh, making a difference literally in the world, and God has put him on some of the largest platforms in our world because of Convoy and what has happened, and I so respect you and what you're doing, and the organization's growing like crazy, and today at the end of our service, we are going to ask you to consider, maybe you've already brought the check, but writing a check made to Timberline Church but every penny of it goes to disaster relief, and none of it stays here. Timberline doesn't benefit any from this offering. This is to help those who have severe needs in our world through the ministry of Convoy of Hope and local responders here in our area as well. So please consider that. Hal, tell us a little bit about Convoy, how it got started, and some of the stories that go with it.
1: All right. Good morning, everyone.
0: It's great Welcome to be with Hal you. Hal
1: Donaldson, would you? Thank, Thank you? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Derry, for the invitation. Your pastor this week has been uh, giving me a hard time. I told him the story of how I was in Chicago recently, and a, a waiter came up to my table and he said, uh, Sir, I love your television show. And I said, Well, thank you, but who do you think I am? And he said, uh, Aren't you Donald Trump? <laughs> I promise you, right then and there, I vowed I was going to lose 30 pounds and change my hairstyle. Pastor, I think I would have felt better about it if he had said, uh, "You look like Brad Pitt." But, uh, but I've been looking forward to this Sunday just to be able to come and say thank you for partnering with Convoy of Hope to respond to disasters across the United States and around the world. We have people on the ground responding, even as I speak today, uh, in places like Joplin and Japan and on the border of Somalia and Kenya. We have people responding, meeting needs, even up in the Northeast, responding to the floods. That's been made possible through your one day to feed the world offering, and you have been so kind in partnering with Convoy of Hope. Together, we are feeding thousands and thousands of children, and I'll give you more of the numbers in just a moment. But this morning, I do want to give a shout out to uh, Rich, who's out there on the road with his Hunger Ride, and uh, we're praying for him. We thank God for his his passion to bring awareness to this incredible need around the world to feed hungry kids. It was 17 years ago that I loaded up a small pickup truck with groceries, and I went into a needy area in Northern California. And I stood up on the back of that truck, passed out groceries, and I told people that day, Jesus loves you, I love you, and there's a church right here that loves you too. That was the start of the Convoy of Hope. Fast forward 17 years with your help, we've now been able to feed and to share Christ with 47 million people. Can you give the Lord a hand this morning? Amen. And through your participation in One Day to Feed the World, there are thousands of kids who can wake up every morning knowing they're going to have food and water and vitamins. They're going to have an education. They're going to learn that Jesus loves them. In places like Kenya, the Philippines, Haiti, Nicaragua, Honduras, many countries around the world, there are children who are receiving help. And we've discovered that if we can feed them, their parents will keep them in school because that means it's one less mouth to feed. Last year, about 14 months ago, we presented to you as a congregation a goal to increase the number of children in our feeding program, to grow it from 30,000 where it was, and to add thousands more that were on a waiting list. And this morning, it thrills me to report to you what God has done over the last 14 months. Today, with Timberline and Convoy of Hope working together, we are now feeding more than 100,000 children. Isn't that amazing? To God be the glory. Absolutely. And because this food is donated by corporations and wholesalers and grocers and and the like, we're able to take your $1 donation and multiply it into $7 worth of food and supplies for desperate, hurting kids around the world. You know, I've told my children through the years, I have four daughters, and I've told them through the years, what we do for the poor and the suffering, God will do for us. And the other day I was riding in the car with my youngest daughter, Hallie, and Hallie has the gift of manipulation. I'm talking about? (laughs) And out of the blue from the back seat, she said, Well, Dad, God wants me to have an ice cream cone. I said, Really? What makes you think that? And she said, Well, I gave my allowance to Convoy of Hope, and you said God would give back to me. I think I want a cone. (laughs) We're still working on our theology for sure. God hasn't promised us ice cream cones, but His Word says it this way. That if we will partner with him to meet the needs of the poor and the suffering, he in turn will bless everything we set our hands to. In Deuteronomy 15 it says he'll bless our homes, our businesses, our finances, our health if we will help the poor and the suffering. I stand here today because of people just like you who reached out to me generously when tragedy struck our family in 1969. This particular night my parents were supposed to go to a business meeting And I was supposed to stay home with a babysitter with my two younger brothers and younger sister. But that night, the babysitter was late. And so all four of us kids piled into the car, and we were going to have to go to the business meeting with our parents. My father was halfway down the road when he looked in his rearview mirror, and he spotted the babysitter pulling into our driveway. And so Dad made a U-turn, dropped the four of us kids off, and we would spend the night with a babysitter after all. Minutes later, my father's car was hit by a drunken driver and he was killed instantly. My mother was seriously injured in the car. She'd be in the hospital for several months with broken bones and internal injuries. And that night changed my life because my dad didn't have insurance and the man who hit him didn't have insurance. And so our family had to go on welfare. As a 12-year-old boy, I didn't like what my life had suddenly become. There were many days that the cupboards and the refrigerator were empty. There were times I had to go to school with holes in, the, in my jeans. And that's before it was fashionable to have holes in your jeans. But night after night, I would hunker down outside my mother's door, and I would listen as she cried herself to sleep. And she'd pray for her kids and ask God to provide. You know, those were difficult days. But friends, I didn't become bitter because of people just like you, who would come to our door week after week with bags of groceries. I can tell you this morning, every can of soup they gave, it gave us hope that tomorrow could be better than today. I committed my life to Jesus Christ as a teenager because I saw the compassion of Christ living out in their lives. And they would tell us week after week when they'd come to our door with groceries, they'd say, Jesus loves you and he has a plan for your life. He has something that he wants you to do. He spared your life. And those words sank in. They had credibility because of their compassion and their authenticity. I'm sure that the enemy thought that he had won a major victory the day my father took his last breath on that California highway. But little did he know that God was going to take my father's mangled automobile and transform it into a fleet of semi-trucks that would crisscross this country, reaching millions with the love of Jesus Christ. Can we give the Lord a hand for doing that this morning? Amen. I'll close with this quick story. I was in Kenya just recently, and they introduced me to a young girl. She was 10 years of age, and she just clung to my side. Then they told me her story, how at the age of eight, this girl had been raped, and now she was HIV positive. And she just clung to my side, didn't want to leave, didn't want me to leave. I looked around that schoolyard, that feeding program that she's a part of, and I saw about 700 children that are in the program in a place called Mathari Valley. Mathari Valley in Kenya is one of the poorest places on the planet. 500,000 people live and the best way to describe it is in a city of children's forts made of plastic and made of aluminum and cardboard. They all live together, 500,000, without electricity, without any running water, no sewage system. And this little girl lives right in the heart of that but she had been rescued and brought to our feeding program. And then I looked around at these 700 kids. They all were in uniforms. They were learning to read and write. They were learning that Jesus loves them. And then friends, I looked around the exterior of that schoolyard and I saw hundreds and hundreds of street kids peering through the fence. They didn't have uniforms. They were living off of garbage heaps in Mathari Valley. They didn't have pure drinking water. In in fact, they were sniffing glue to take away their hunger pangs. And my heart broke, and the tears began to flow down my face because I knew the job wasn't done. That there were thousands and thousands more in Mathari Valley alone that needed to be part of that feeding program. But the Lord gave me comfort with this thought, that he hasn't asked us to save every child. All he's asked us to do is to do all we can. So that kids like this little girl don't have to go hungry. And one day they'll have the opportunity to walk on streets of gold. Through your participation in One Day to Feed the World, this is what you're doing. You are opening your arms and you are inviting these street kids inside the fence. And you're giving them a future. Thank you for being a part of One Day to Feed the World. We love it, appreciate you so much. On behalf of the thousands of kids you are feeding, God bless you, Pastor Gary. Amen. Thank you, Hal. We want to pray
0: for you. you. I'm going to ask Jeff and Brian to come as we pray for Hal and Convoy. Guys, what's so exciting about this is we're part of this stuff that happens all over the world through what goes on today in a one day to feed the world. And it's a sacrifice. It's a lot that is asked of you. But I ask it in boldness because... It's a worthy cause. When you hear on the news there's a disaster in Japan or that there's something happened in another city, you can know you're there through convoy. And there are, are hands on the ground. And I've, I've been consoled by that in my life. And, and so that's why we say, figure it out. And you know what? If you don't want to do the one day's wage, God may be just putting a number in your heart a way to to give, um, you just do that as unto the Lord, okay? And uh, what's going to happen is we're going to take our regular offering in just a second here, and um, then we're going to, at the very end, we're just going to have buckets at the back that you drop in your one-day offering as you walk out the door, okay? So let's pray. Lord, thank you for Hal and Brian, and uh, Jeff and I just agree, and as a family at Timberline, we just pray over them for your strength, that they need you, they trust you, and put everything in them that they need. Give wisdom and guidance and clarity for the future. Thank you, God, that we are partners together to make a difference in this world, and the world is changing because of ministries like Convoy. Be blessed in your name. Amen amen ushers would you come we're going to receive our regular offering and uh and uh if you'll just go ahead and receive that you guys this is be for your tithe and offering if you're a guest drop the connection card in as it goes by and pastor jeff is going to go ahead and how many of you can listen and give at the same time so he's going to dive right in so thank you for your faithfulness in giving today god bless you
2: why don't we uh why don't we say thanks to hal and brown one more time can we do that thanks guys Well good morning everybody, good morning everybody, good morning. I'm Pastor Brad Pitt if in case you were wondering and hey you know you've been hearing all about convoy and you might be wondering you know when it comes to the end of the service is, is this something that is really worth investing in. Uh, many of us know uh, Rich Dixon, Rich uh, uh, uses a wheelchair, he has done so because he uh, was paralyzed from the, the chest down over 20 years ago. And right now, because Rich believes in convoy, uh, he is uh, doing a 1,500-mile ride using a hand cycle. It's just a remarkable thing, and he is 195 miles uh, into his ride right now. So if you're wondering if this thing is worth getting behind, uh, uh, Rich is, is doing this fantastic thing. Include him in your prayers, if you would. And let's not just be inspired, but let's follow that uh, incredible example. Well, you've already heard that we are starting a new series next week, and so we are not in a series this week. And so I've prepared a selection of songs which I'd like to perform (laughs) unaccompanied in falsetto for you. I'm just kidding. Some of you are looking really alarmed. We're going to look at, a, at, a, at a, an encounter with God uh, and the experience of a guy by the name of Gideon. I've called this a close encounter of a God kind. And we're going to look at Judges chapter 6, quite a lot of text. So we're going to jump around in that chapter a little as we think about a close encounter of a God kind. Verse 11 says this The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, "'The Lord is with you, mighty warrior.' "'Pardon me, my Lord,' Gideon replied, "'but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? "'Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about "'when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? "'But now the Lord has abandoned us "'and given us into the hand of Midian.'" And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Verse 24 says, So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the obeys That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. And then verse 28, in the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down And the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? And when they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. How many of you folks who are married uh, got married sometime between 1970 and 1985? If that was the case, just raise your hand. Sometime between 1970 and 1985. Congratulations. Let me tell you that if there's nothing on TV and you just want a good laugh, pull out your wedding photographs. How many of you will agree with me that something happened in that era to fashion? It was like a fashion demon roamed the earth, striking us all with an ugly stick. It was incredible. Does anyone remember those fashions from back there? There were, there were flared trousers. We call them trousers. You call them pants. Just for your information, if you ever go to Britain, in England, your pants are your underwear. So you might want to just get that clear flared trousers pants that could could uh, wrap themselves around small children in a in a contrary wind i mean those were amazing platform anyone remember platform hills the atmosphere was thin up there wasn't it on top of those hills and then jackets with lapels wide enough to, to 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 get a 747 to take off and hot pants anyone remember hot pants and on some people, they definitely weren't hot, let's face it it, 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 it was an ugly time. In fact, I've got a couple of photographs of my wife and I back in that era. Do you want, How many would like to see those photographs? Uh, okay, look at that, look. I mean, obviously I was unaware of the fact that an eagle had built a nest on my head. Uh, children and small animals used to shelter beneath the shade of that thing, and... Uh, Here's another one of us as well uh, with me completely (laughs) clad in (laughs) denim and my wife apparently aspiring to be a country and western singer. (laughs) Why did we look like that? I'll tell you why. It's because everybody looked like that. Well, pretty much. You see, we human beings are creatures of the pack we heard. Someone somewhere says, this looks cool. And we all go, okay. And we run out and buy it because we want to look like everybody else is supposed to look. It's the fact that we are creatures of conformity. 3,100 years ago, Israel was in big trouble in the promised land. How do you get in trouble in the promised land? It's really easy. All you have to do is want to be like everybody else. 150 years had gone by since Joshua had led the people into that land. And now Israel is constantly doing evil things. In Judges chapter 2 through 5, it says that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord five times. But do you know that sometimes evil is not that imaginative? It's not that creative what we actually end up doing is just we end up doing what everybody else is doing we conform we fit in we are called to be different because God is different some theologians call God the great stranger because he is so utterly other and different from all that we are and because we are people who follow him we are called to be strangers too now I didn't say strange How many know that some Christians don't need any permission to be stranger than they are? Nanu, nanu. (laughs) I'm not talking strange weird. I'm talking strange different. And three times in his epistle in 1 Peter, Peter talks about us being aliens and strangers in the world. But the challenge is that it is so easy to just conform, to fit in. And that's exactly what happened to the Hebrews when they got into their promised land. The Canaanites were there, and guess what? The Canaanites, in their religion, they'd had offerings of sheep and cattle, just like the Hebrews. They had a priesthood with 12 priestly families, just like the Hebrews. They had had prophets, they had psalmists, they had scribes. They centered their whole life around the agricultural calendar, just like the Hebrews. And so it wasn't very long before the Hebrews kind of thought, well, we're all kind of the same, aren't we? So let's just fit in. The Canaanites worshipped a bull. And what's one of the first things that happens to Israel when they get into their promised land? They worship A golden calf because there is this pressure to just be the same and right in the middle of all of this mess brothers and sisters what God does is he raises up an ordinary trembling fearful guy like Gideon to attempt to nudge Israel out of her sleep and do something different and there's an encounter with God that happens so what can we learn From that encounter. If you're following the bulletin, follow along with me. First of all, I want you to know that this encounter with God led to suffering for Gideon. It led to suffering for Gideon. Let me jump to the end of the story or the end of this part of the story for a moment. Look at verse 30. The people of the town demanded of Joash, Bring out your son, he must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Boy, that shows how low Israel had got. But you see, as a result of Gideon meeting the angel, Gideon tears down this Baal altar and Asherah pole. More about that later. But the people of the town don't go, Hallelujah, hand me a tambourine that I might headbutt it. They get really upset. And as a result of meeting God, the angel of the Lord, Gideon, goes into suffering. Can I just say this? First of all, Christians are not promised that we will not suffer. We heard earlier, God has not promised us ice cream cones. And I want to say this. Sometimes it's not just that. Sometimes we will suffer more because we faithfully follow God. Can I put it like this? If you're not a Christian and you're looking for a quiet life, don't get around Jesus because he might mess your life up in the very best possible way. But often, brothers and sisters, when other Christians suffer, we start coming out with stuff that frankly isn't helpful because we don't like to see them suffer. And then we end up sharing slogans that hurt them. Have you ever have you ever been around people you know someone gets sick in the church and immediately people show up and they say well you know you're you're sick because you haven't got enough faith That's your problem oh thanks a lot now not only am i sick but i'm faithless as well that's that's really helpful thank you very much or i or here's the reason why you're sick there's sin in your life oh thank you very much now i'm sick and faithless and sinful is there any other good news Or they'll say, well, you're sick because this is God's will. Oh, really? Let me tell you something. God doesn't always get his perfect will done. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. It isn't God's will that children starve today. And because something happens doesn't mean that God initiates it. He can redeem it. God did not initiate the tragedy that came into Hal's family and life, but he has redeemed that tragedy. Or there are some people who say, "Well, I, I'm just going to insist that this sick person is not going to die." In fact, on Facebook recently, uh, I saw a statement. And by the way, when I say this, please don't say "Amen" because you're embarrassed yourself because it's the wrong statement. I just give you the warning. It said this: "It said faith is not believing that God will do something; it's knowing that He will do something." You know that sounds really good, but often we don't know what He's going to do. We don't know what He's going to do, and what can happen is that Christians get sick and we pray and we deny the reality of their sickness and sometimes they never get to say goodbye because we're refusing to accept that they're going to die and they die with a, a sense of shame, feeling like somehow they've let God and the rest of us down. Isn't it true that we should pray for the best, prepare for the worst and then realize that the worst is not the worst because Jesus has beaten death. You know what I learned from the 40 chapters of the book of Job? I learned that when you're in trouble, irritating people will show up. <laughs> and sometimes we do great damage to people. A few weeks ago in England, I met, I met Jenny. Jenny is a is a wheelchair user. She's been disabled for many years. And I preached one night, and I talked about this stuff, and I apologized to the group of people who were using wheelchairs. I said, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry for all these silly slogans that people have said to you. I'm really sorry that we've wounded you the way we have. I'm sorry that when you came forward for prayer about your finances, someone tried to pull you out of the wheelchair, and they didn't even bother to ask you what you wanted prayer for. I'm sorry that we experimented on you. I got pretty animated about this. And the next day I wandered over to Jenny and she was sitting there, sm- big smile on her face. I said, good morning, never met her before. She said, thanks for saying what you said last night. She said, something happened to me last night. Something lifted off of me. In fact, I spent two hours on the telephone to my son talking about it. When you apologized for all that silly stuff that people say, I felt a burden lift. And she said, I came in here this morning and my friends have been coming up to me and they've been saying, what's happened to you? And she said, for the last year, I've not been in church. I got fed up with going to church because they all told me I didn't have enough faith. And she said, my skin had turned gray. I was pallid with depression. And she said, I came in here this morning. I said, my friends have been coming up saying, what happened to you? There's color back in your cheeks. Your skin has changed color. And I stood there and I thought, how incredible that the thoughtless words of perhaps well-meaning Christians can take a technicolor person like Jenny and turn her pallid. But a simple apology might be the deal that God wants to bring color back to her cheeks. If you're suffering right now, I'm really sorry if well-meaning Christians have said unhelpful things to you. And I want to say to you, We are not exempted from suffering. So don't feel bad because you're going through bad stuff. Secondly, I want to say that the encounter created questions and confusion it created questions and confusion. Look at verse 13. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever seen, I've talked about this before, you've ever seen Monty Python's Flying Circus? Confess. Raise your hand if you've ever seen this this scene here is like something out of Monty Python it's so bizarre because Gideon's got all of these silly questions and then he prepares a sacrifice if you read the story the angel torches the sacrifice Gideon freaks out God has to reassure him don't worry it's okay you're not going to die the encounter with God didn't answer all of Gideon's questions it provoked a few new ones See, I think we just think that if we meet God enough, we won't have any questions anymore. You'll probably have a few more. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit does a remarkable thing, and what immediately happens is an ignition of question marks. What's this all about? And this is a scene where some rather silly questions are asked. I, um, we've been having some problems with our phone service, and I had to call uh, the customer service line. How many know what i 'm talking about you know you, you, you are warmly greeted by a robot, and it 's you know you press one if you 've got this problem and and, and two if you 've been hanging on for five years and 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 then you get through and how many know you have to go through the security questions don 't you what 's your dog 's favorite color all that kind of stuff and I was trying to talk to um, the phone company and the customer service lady bless her she said uh, but the account's in my wife's name, and uh, she said, "Is your wife there with you, Mr. Lucas?" And I said, "Yes, she is." And she said, "And you are your wife's husband, are you?" <laughs> and I said, "Yeah. That's why they call her my wife." <laughs> I mean, I really wanted to go, "Duh," but well, that would have been rude. sometimes we ask ridiculous questions it's all right listen don't allow questions to paralyze you in fact i pray that more and more of us followers of jesus will be agitated by questions so that we'll dig deeper in our faith I and mean, when we do this fill in the blank thing to help us with the sermon but don't have a fill in the blank faith what's the answer pastor tell me be people who wrestle with the questions but are not intimidated by them and by the way if you're not a Christian and you've got a few questions about this stuff great that's wonderful because I've been a Christian for a long time (laughs) and I've still got in fact I've got more questions now than I had when I got started that's all right The encounter with God created questions and confusion. Thirdly, the encounter ignited an outbreak of shame. The encounter ignited an outbreak of shame. This is really important. Verse 15, Pardon me, my lord Gideon replied, How can I save Israel? My clan's the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my family. I have studied angelic appearances in the Bible, and generally speaking, four things happen, everybody. I want you to get this. Number one, an angel appears. Secondly, the angel says some unbelievably good news. Thirdly, the person being spoken to concludes that this good news is too good to be true. And fourthly, a fight begins. That's the way it usually happens. Why is it that Gideon felt so bad? I'm the least. In fact, I love it. What he actually says in the Hebrew is, we are the clan whose hair hangs down limply. (laughs) I would love to be able to say that. I mean, isn't that wonderful? The angel of the Lord is saying, the Lord is with you. And he's saying, you don't understand, pal. We're the bad hair day tribe. I mean, there's no chance for us. Why did Gideon feel so ashamed? I'll tell you why. His people had felt like that for a thousand years. Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh. A thousand years earlier, Joseph went in to see his father, his dying father, Jacob. You can read about it in Genesis 48 and he wanted his father's blessing on his two eldest sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh was the eldest son, and so was entitled to the primary blessing, the right hand of blessing. In Hebrew culture, the right hand was the hand of blessing. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father so he goes into Jacob and he positions the boys carefully so that Manasseh will get the primary blessing and right at the last moment Jacob switches his hands over and passes over Manasseh and, put, and puts the left hand on Manasseh and puts the right hand of favor on Ephraim. So for 1,000 years, these people felt like this. Passed over. Second best. Not really accepted. I'm the least. And not only am I the least, I'm the least in my family, and my clan is the least in the tribe. We're the least of the least of the least of the least. Some people today... Feel just like that. People in this building and in the South Auditorium, you wake up feeling bad. You feel ashamed. Some of us, we don't even know why we feel ashamed. Some of us feel ashamed because of words spoken over us years ago, you'll never be any good. Some of us feel bad because of bad things that were done to us. It wasn't anything to do with us. Bad things were done and we feel unclean. And we need to learn the difference between shame and guilt that's inspired by the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit conviction is good. But you know, shame is a blanket that smothers us. Guilt is targeted and says, no, this is what's wrong. In fact, Bob in our chapel this week, he said, guilt says you made a mistake. Shame says you are a mistake. Shame defines us by our worst moments. When I was praying about this last night, I felt like I needed to say this today. Some of us, because of shame, we always feel like we're standing outside the circle. This affects our friendships, it affects our church lives, it affects our marriages. We stand outside the the circle because of irrational shame. And you know what that means? It means we're constantly asking people to invite us back into the circle of acceptance. And we step back in because they assure us. And then we step back out again, waiting for them to invite us back in again. And we spend our lives ashamed. At that same conference where I met Jenny, I met Anne. Someone was preaching one night, and I was just in the congregation. And he gave her an altar call, a response time. And Anne, an elderly lady who uses a Zimmer frame, a walking frame, she shuffled forward and stood at the front. Her head bowed, weeping. And this doesn't often happen to me, but I just felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, go over to that woman, put your hand on her shoulder, and say to her, what do you think you're doing here? I thought, that's a really weird thing to do. How many know that I'm really weird? I wandered over to her, and I put my hand on her shoulder. I said, honey, we don't know each other. My name's Jeff, and I just submit to you that I feel like the Lord is saying to you, what do you think you're doing here? You don't belong here. You don't need... You don't belong here weeping like you are. She said, I can't believe this. She said, said, I always go forward. I always repent. I always feel bad. She said, my friends tell me, you haven't got to go forward every time. Why do you always do that? She said, no wonder God's telling me, what are you doing here? It makes sense. She said, I can't wait to tell my friends. I've got a gang of 90-year-olds. When I tell them, they're going to come and find you and kiss you. A terrifying thought. What are you doing there? And some of us instinctively are like that. And we can never get the fact that God is not mad with us. Some years ago, I was preaching in a church, and I was talking about this right hand of God's favor. No one knew that I was going to preach on that that night except me and God. And I was just about to get up to speak when one of the leaders of the church, a lady... Linda wandered over to me. She had that spooky look in her eyes. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? That spooky look. Ooh-hoo-hoo. And I, I, she, said, she said, Jeff, I feel like God wants me to do something. I said, Linda, I'm just about to speak. She said, No, I've got to do this. I said, Okay, get on with it. And she said, Stretch out your right hand. I put my hand out. And, and She didn't say anything. She just took some anointing oil and poured oil onto my right hand. And she said, that's it. And I got up to speak on the right hand of God's favor with my own right hand dripping with oil that symbolizes the Holy Spirit. Do you know why? Because God was yelling at me. Don't you know? I love you. And some of you are looking at me right now. You're going, how come you have those experiences? I'll tell you why. Because God likes to bless stupid people like me. You see, maybe you've got more faith, but God knows. He he probably says, it's Lucas, bless his heart. He doesn't even know how to drive on the right side of the road when he's in America. So we better grease him up with oil from the Holy Land just before he preaches so that he will get it. I love him. And I want you to know today, if you're a shame addict, that God wants to shout at you, the Lord is with you. Why not leave that shame behind? Well, the last thing in conclusion, fourthly, is that the encounter provokes some holy vandalism. The encounter provoked some holy vandalism. Verse 25, that same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Very quickly, most of us have heard of Baal worship. But Baal was only the prime minister of the gods. The senior god in Canaanite religion was El, and he had a relationship with Asherah, who was his mistress, and who spawned thousands of godets in this bizarre occultic Canaanite religion. It was terrible. They would sacrifice children to Asherah and Baal. And the first thing that Gideon had to do before he could impact the nation was to chop that Asherah pole down and break up the Baal altar. When Kay and I first came to America, we lived in Southern Oregon, Klamath Falls, Oregon. And we lived in a house that only had as its heat source a wood stove. This freaked me out. I'd lived in London where you push a button and the heat comes on and now I had to chop wood for the wood stove I went out and bought myself a checked flannel shirt (laughs) I got myself a baseball cap with a tractor on it and I said to my wife, honey, fear not for I shall go and chop wood for us and we shall be warmed how many know this was never going to work out well? I went outside with my wife peering through the window, giggling, for she knew, she knew what haplessness was about to unfold. And I put a piece of wood on the chopping block and I took serious aim. And I nearly removed my right kneecap. Because for the first five hits I did not hit, I missed. And an hour and a half later, I triumphantly appeared with a basket of splinters with which to warm ourselves. You see, I was enthusiastic about the axe. I just kept missing. And that's what happens to us. God says, chop that thing down, break up that altar, shatter that pole. And we come to church and we say, yeah, that's it. I'm going to pick up that axe. And we just keep missing And it might be that this is a time when we're going to hit that thing. We're going to take that ax and we're going to say that pole is going to be broken. What is that Asherah pole in in your life? What is that Baal altar? And it's taken up residence and you're used to it and you accept it and something says to you it's always going to be there. And then it shames you and you go around in circles Maybe today is the time. Maybe today. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we thank you for this this story of an encounter, the encounter of a God kind. It's an encounter that led to suffering. Gideon's quiet life was disrupted by his obedience to you. And Lord, we want to pray today for any who suffer, that you will strengthen them, that you will grant them grace to be faithful, healing, strength, power, wisdom. We pray for those of us who walk with those who suffer. Grant that we would never hurt them with well-meaning words that bruise. We bring our questions to you, our confusion to you, and we ask you to help us to dig deeper in our faith and wrestle with those questions. But then, Lord, we want to bring our shame to you. I want to just pause as our heads are bowed. I felt very specifically this thing about stepping into the circle and waiting for people to in when we step out again and then waiting for people to invite us back in again. And I I just have a sense that very specifically that described some of us. I want to ask you if that's you, just put your hand up right now, please. Just briefly hold it up in the air for a moment and, and put your hands down. I want to speak specifically in prayer over these people. Thank you, Lord, that you invite them into the circle for keeps. I pray, God, for each one of them that you will break this pattern of stepping in, stepping out, and that where shame shrouds us, that we will know your peace. And then, Lord, we pray about those Asherah poles that need to come down, those altars that need to be shattered. And God, we ask you that not only will we feel motivated to swing the axe, but that we will hit the target by your grace so that we might be different. Our time has gone, but I quickly want to ask this as our heads remain bowed. I wonder if there are people here today who would like to say yes I've got questions but I want to be a follower of Jesus I want to make that step I want to become a Christian can I ask wherever you are be it here or in the in the south auditorium if that's true for you you want to make that decision right now and maybe you've been kept away fearing that you had to have all your questions answered but you want to make that choice now can I ask if that's true for you would you just slip up your hand for a moment please hold it there for a second and then put it down again. Just do it now if that's your choice. Thank you. That's, that's fantastic. I want to say to you, just call out to God right now. Ask him to forgive you your sin. Invite him to take charge. Becoming a Christian is a simple step of saying, I want to follow you, Jesus. You died on the cross for me. You're alive right now. I choose in this moment to make that choice and become a follower of Christ that's where you're at. Just let him know in your own words and he will hear you. Also, our prayer team will be here at the end and we've got little booklets here that can help clarify that decision for you. So please make sure that you come and have a, just wander down to the front when the service is done and we'd love to help. God bless you. Let's sit up together, shall we? And we are going in a moment to have our final benediction prayer. We're not going to to sing a song as is our normal habit because our closing worship will be our participation in this one day to feed the world offering. And so I would like to invite you uh if you'd like to take some moments to prepare that offering right now because in a few seconds uh we are going to stand and uh and uh, dismiss this service. And then when when we've had that prayer if you want to sit back down again, and and continue to prepare your offering and then uh, uh, head for the doors when you'd like to. That would be great. If you're able, would you stand with me one more time? Let's stand together. Lord, take us now into a new week as carriers and as those who enjoy the grace of God. Yes, Lord, convict us of sin but save us from shame. And may we know that you are with us. We agree together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Hey, have a wonderful weekend. Yesterday was winter. Today is summer. So who knows what's next? Have a great weekend. Prayer team are here. If you want to sit down and prepare that offering before you go, that would be great. Stay safe. God bless you.